Accutron Watches present. From New York City, this is the Accutron Show, a time travel through American culture with your hosts, Bill McCuddy, Scott Alexander, and David Graver. Visit AccutronWatch.com and discover the brand that has made American history with an all-new proprietary next-generation electrostatic energy movement. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. I know this sounds like some Miss America pageant, but I do think that if you surround yourself with like stuff that you really like, as opposed to stuff that you think like, you know, Tom Ford likes or your mother likes or something, you are just gonna be happier. The person you heard at the top of the show, yes, was today's guest, the American iconic fashion designer and television personality, Isaac Mizrahi. He joins us for this special edition of the Accutron Show, dedicated to, appropriately enough, design. But first up, me, Bill McCuddy, culture writer Scott Alexander, and editor David Graver. We're discussing design, but don't go by me. I, if you can't see this, let me just tell you, I'm not the best when it comes to design, but we've got the expert to talk to. All that and more on this episode of the Accutron Show, so stay tuned. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, accutronwatch.com, and discover our iconic Space View 2020 collection, recreating the stunning visual impact of the original open dial design combined with an all-new electrostatic energy movement. Time just changed again. The Accutron Space View 2020. All right, what is design? To me, when I walk into MoMA and I see that Jaguar, that XKE that's on display there, that's one of the most beautiful, Enzo Ferrari called that one of the most beautiful cars ever, and it's in a museum. After that, I have no clue. Uh, to me, it's the, that blending of form and function. It's the intentionality uh, there. Like, you can make a Model T. Model T wasn't made with design in mind. Right. right? The Jaguar was, and it's also aerodynamic. So, so when you can really meld those things, like there's sometimes you make something completely impractical that's very pretty. Sometimes you make something the Jag very, is a good example. very practical <laughs> that's very ugly. Right. Right. Yeah. And then there, for me, what is most satisfying is when it's right there in the middle, the form and function come together. I would say of the three of us, no offense, <laughs> David Graver is probably the most design forward or fashionable. The way we often talk about design at Cool Hunting is design is problem solving. You need mm. to get from place A to place B. You design a wheel to do so. You want to look good doing so. You design a Ferrari. You design that Jaguar that you were speaking of. Uh, or the unicycle. Or the or unicycle. <laughs> if you that's just why, need one wheel. That's why I, I know you said you're not good at design, Bill, but you have an eye. In a way, we all have a, an eye for design. It's, it's just our particular taste in design, which is often up for debate. So when does it go <laughs> bad? I mean, how is there bad design? What's the origin of that? I mean, if we're all... I would argue there's, no, function, die, terrible there's function. no such thing as, as bad design if someone likes it. You've it, never it's, seen a gremlin? It's good yeah. for that person. But I have a friend who th their favorite car in the world is the gremlin. <laughs> they own two. I, mean, is, I know they, PT Cruiser he's, fans. He's, I love these guys because this is always completely unrehearsed. I had no idea. What about a pacer? Does he like He's a big D&D &D player and he's convinced that the gremlin is, a, is an elven car. <laughs> but design touches everything. Design is everywhere. Fashion design is very important, but so is auto design, and so is housing design. Architecture is merely housing Pen design. design. Pen design. <laughs> but having it be the right weight, but also pretty and all that stuff, it's like, it matters. But design is a concept that people, people often don't think about, 
Until they realize design is everywhere and design touches everything. Is right. it in the genes? Isaac's parents were in the, she was very fashionable. Her, his dad, like, actually had a, a children's clothing company. Yeah. So, like, is it part of, are we wired for it? And some people are and some people are Children aren't. don't deserve design. <laughs> he got a sewing machine at 15. Jeez. I'm sure we're going to hear about that. Yeah. All of this is important today because it's one of the four pillars that Accutron was founded on. And today we're talking about design. And maybe we have one of the foremost uh, guests that we've ever had, and it's Isaac Mizrahi. He joins us right after this. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website, AccutronWatch.com, and discover our Accutron DNA collection. Reimagined for a new generation, the Accutron DNA combines breakthrough technology, precise engineering, and modern aesthetics to achieve a new level of technical excellence. The Accutron DNA, the new face of time, for those who blaze new trails. Isaac, welcome to the Accutron Show. And I guess uh, we're excited because it's a special design episode. Uh, I guess my first question or our first question for you is, when did you realize you knew something about design or that you had taste? What were you doing and where were you? Well, you know, um, design for me was always something kind of... um, inborn it was something that like I did I just kind of did it I never had to think too much about it or encourage myself to study it or something it's always been this kind of obsession you know um and 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 I started in show business I started by doing female impersonations when I was like you know eight years old which was not a source of pride for the Mizrahi family, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you no, know, in 1970, whatever the hell that was, right? How was your Liza? Um, it was amazing. My Liza is so amazing. The whole family, the Garlands, the Lofts, right. and all of them. Oh my Luft, God, Lorna Luft got a Luft. shout out just now. Wow. Luft, exactly. Well, anyway, um, so, you know, I started, that's what I kind of aspired to, I, I aspired to show business. It's funny. And then, you know, I went to performing arts high school. I was an acting major. And the year I graduated, they made that movie called um, Fame, which I'm in. If you look closely, you can find me. I have a few scenes in that movie. And um, and so my first kind of thing in life was to be an actor and a performer. And then I need the thing, the thing that happened to me was roughly in high school, I discovered that I needed to get out of my house. I needed to figure out a way to make enough money to support myself, to kind of get out of the house because it just wasn't the friendliest place to gay people and to creative people. It was this kind of orthodox, weird, anomalous, Jewish orthodox thing. And, you know, and, and, and my family was pretty great. They were great, except for the fact that they didn't really accept homosexuality or even creativity you know if you're if you in in the in the orthodox jewish faith art is sometimes seen as idol worship and so it was all this weird messaging i was getting as a kid and i didn't know what happened so when i was a teenager you know i was at performing arts high school i don't know how that happened there was a teacher that i had in eighth grade at yeshiva flatbush who kind of looked at me and said, you know, you probably shouldn't, you should probably not be in the yeshiva. And so it took everything I had. I got to performing arts high school. I was an acting major for all those years. And then I, I decided I needed to like do anything I could to, 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 to get out of the house. And so it occurred to me that it would just be easier for me to get a job in the design world than it would 
to, as an actor to get cast. You know, the, the, the odds of getting cast, the way that was laid out for us at Performing Arts High School, it was like, yeah, kids, don't expect to work too much, you know? Uh-huh. And I thought- But you're gonna well, live forever. Right. Well, just, well you're That's the fame promise. <laughs> right, darling, that's right. But, but the point was, I, I, I wasn't wrong, you know? I mean, I decided to go to Parsons instead of Juilliard, you know, for right. instance, or Purchase or one of the other acting colleges mm-hmm. that my friends all went to. I went to Parsons and I, you know, I got in and I went and it was very exciting and I loved it. And then I was right, you know, I got a job right away at the end of my junior year, not even my senior year. I worked for Perry Ellis the last year of my, you know, my year at, at Parsons. And um, and then of course I went from there to Jeffrey Banks and then from there to Calvin Klein. And then I opened my own company in 1986. And so, you know, so it was like this, it's like, it's like, cooking dinner or something. Design for me is not, it's exciting and it's wonderful and it's very enriching, but it's not as dangerous to me as show business. Mm. Show business Uh has this kind of like crazy dangerous edge to it that I really love and that now I'm sort of mostly focused on. So It it does feel like such a a wildly practical choice for an 18 year old to make to say you know what design the odds are better there but then once you're in design it feels like there's this real tension between practicality and sort of you know form and function sort of was that ever a tension for you that did that practicality i mean you know you say at 18 it's probably easier for me to get a job as a designer thinking somehow that the design world was a kinder gentler profession than <laughs> show business, which is a kind of an hilarious because it's a very cutthroat and insanely right. competitive field and the thing is you know um it was this crazy grand design i had to kind of get out of the house you know and i was really right about that when i was 20 they they when i finished college they let me move out until then i was kind of stuck at home and when i moved out it was like the beginning of my life and um you know the the thing about design is that i probably could have taken a different path in terms of you know right away doing a much more commercial thing but i don't know why i i had this kind of brainwashing from Perry Ellis and from Calvin Klein and from the different designers that I'd worked with and also the connections, you know, it's like I knew all the editors, I knew all those people. And so I was brainwashed into thinking that you begin, you start a brand from the top, you start a brand from like, you know, expensive, as many beautiful things as you can. And and, and the thing is, even in design, even still, I am, I, I don't, I mean, I have a lot of licenses and I have a lot of products out there and I, and, and, but everything I do is a reflection and everything I do, I take seriously. I'm not kidding. It's, it's, it's a very, very big world out there and I have a very big brand, you know, on QVC and other, other licenses. I mean, you know, I have a lot of licenses and, and, and I, and I, and I make sure that like sort of everything is on a kind of level, you know? And of course I'm not doing couture anymore. I'm not doing the top, top end anymore. You know, um, that might change, who knows? But I'll tell you, it's, 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 it's still a kind of rigorous pursuit for me. You know, it's a very rigorous pursuit. Throughout your thus far illustrious career, you've dressed performers, actors, singers, and most notably, dancers, do you think your early interest in the performing arts sort of fueled your ability to do so? Yes, I do. And you know, um, 
The thing is that people ask the most annoying question, which is, what's the difference between, you know, clothes that on the street and clothes on the stage? And you know what? I don't know. You have to show me the clothes on the stage and show me the clothes on the street and I'll tell you the difference. You know, of course, when you're dressing a dancer, there's a whole other. And of course, you know, I've worked with almost every great choreographer alive, except for the very young ones. I haven't really worked with some of the very young ones, but I've worked my whole life with Mark Morris. He's my best friend. And um, and the thing about Mark is like, you know, you go, no, darling, they have to wear support clothes. They have to wear like a jock strap and a bra. You know, they have to wear these things, right? You're designing for performance. If he had his way, they would be wearing nothing. Form, it's like, function. oh, there are buttons on this thing. There are buttons. Do you know how dangerous buttons are? And I'm like, darling, we have to like make a concession. They're adults. They can learn how to partner with it. With, <laughs> with buttons on the cloak, you know? I mean, like, that's just who he is. And so, but I, I, I believe like when I look at dance, especially, you know, because I, I did study dance for a long time. I love dance. I'm a, I'm a real bella domain. You know, I took class, forget about watching it for a thousand years and being obsessed with it and like from all different angles. And I've known so many incredible dancers, you know? And I and I bond with them. I think if I weren't any of the things I I, I I am, I would have been a dancer. And I just have this weird body, so I probably wouldn't have been a very good dancer. I have really high arches and really, which is supposed to be good, but it's it's really hard to plie. I mean, it's a bad scene. My body is a bad scene, but 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 in, in fact, I, I love dance. And when you're dressing dancers, you and and also as a performer, you realize that if the costume isn't adding then there's something wrong, you know? Um, and, and, and by the way, there are, there are things which are just about costumes. You know, there are like shows that are only about costumes. Tableau vivant, you know, is only about, you move a little bit. It's not about the performance. It's more about the show. It's more about the art direction, but the shows that I've always been designed, that I've always designed and shows I've always been in, you know, it's like I do my shows at the Carlisle or at the venues that I do the sh different shows, and if I'm wearing something that I feel like, even if my shoe doesn't fit properly, I kind of just want to rip it off in the middle of the show and throw it at the audience, you know, because it's something that stops you from, and of course you overcome everything. You have to overcome everything on stage. But I do think that the empathy I feel for performers is because I am a performer, you know? So the central question is bad design does bother you. You walk into a room and the sofa isn't right or the something's oh. off and it's 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 off-putting to you? Very, very off-putting, extremely off-putting. I, I I guess it's it's maybe it's got it's it's got to do with my my planetary, like my horoscope or something, but I am dreadful around bad design, dreadful. And, you know, um, for a while- Well, you're never coming to my house. <laughs> well, for a while I had this little apartment in Pennsylvania near the studio at QVC because, you know, since COVID it's all gone digital. So no one has to go, but it used to be, I had to be there for days and hours. And I had this like small apartment and it was fine. It was like this new constructed building, but it was just so there was just nothing you could do to these rooms to make them nothing and and the smell of 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 it was like smelled like lumber liquidators you know like uh, like <laughs> right. you know, new construction that wasn't in the brochure i'm guessing <laughs> no 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 the flooring was made of something and i burned a trillion candles and i'm not a candle burner <laughs> i don't like candles um you know um and so uh yeah so 
Okay. No, so the thing is, we're going to talk about QVC. I want to hear about your one man show. I know that there are a lot of things going on with you, and we especially want to focus in on perhaps the influence that the 1960s has had on any part of your development, whether it's in show business or in design. And we will do all of that right after this. Don't go okay. away. This podcast is presented by Accutron Watches. Visit our website accutronwatch.com and discover our legacy collection. Reviving some of the most memorable Accutron watches from the 60s and 70s, the legacy collection combines timeless design with the technical excellence of Swiss watchmaking, each limited to 600 individually numbered pieces. The Accutron Legacy Collection, inspired by the past, built for the future. We are back talking design on this special edition of the Accutron Show, and who better to have than Isaac Mizrahi? Isaac, uh, we've been talking a lot about your beginnings and the things that you do and don't like in design. One of them is an apartment somewhere near the QVC facility that uh, smelled like lumber liquidators, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. Well, bad for you, but very funny. Um, oh, some kind of composite flooring that you just cannot get. Yeah, like that new car smell, but in a bad way, because it was in, in a, a very bad way. Yeah, exactly. yeah. okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the, you do still perform. You do have a one-man show that you've been doing around the country. Tell us about what that is, but also what it fulfills for you. Um, well, you know, I started performing, as, I, as you know, like as a kid, right? And throughout my career in high school, and then even, you know, like I remember one of the, one of the most kind of, you know, forks in the road, Forks in the Road. I never really thought about it until recently. I remember when I started my company in 1987, right? Um, you know, um, it was meteoric. It was meteoric. It was like, you know, I was, I was in business a year and suddenly I had my first show and literally everybody came and it was literally on the cover of Women's Wear Daily like once a week, you know, for, for months and months and then Vogue and then Bizarre and all this press and the Times and I was being reviewed and it was crazy. And, and, um, and I remember at the very same time, there was this offer that I got to star in this little play downtown, which was actually a remake of the women starring all men. Right. It was only men in these, and it was this small little, you know, experimental theater group downtown. Um, and I was so torn. Like I would have part of me just wanted to throw everything away and go do this show, you know. Um, and 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 I have to say that, like, you know, the the genetics throughout my career, even when I was working as a fashion designer, I would take a few nights and do a gig somewhere. You know, I had it was this thing that I could not stop myself from doing. And then you know, in the early 2000s, when I closed my couture part, I had the license with Target, which was an incredible commitment. And it took a lot of rigor and a lot of my, but it was never the same thing. It's just never the same thing as creating these clothes from scratch that you drape and you sew and you work with these people in a room and make the clothes. It's just never going to be like, that's just hours and crazy, 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 crazy kind of commitment and crazy kind of, you know, um, achievement to do that. And, but so since then, since I'm not doing that, I have all this time 
all this time, you know? So, but I, and so I've been getting back into it. I had a one person show on broad on off Broadway for about two years. That was amazing called Lay Mizrahi with the same band I work with now. It's a little, the band is a little bit bigger now, but there was that. And then I started doing gigs again about, you know, 20 years ago, I was working at Joe's pub and working at, different little clubs downtown. So and it's singing and it's, it's dancing and it's a couple no of dancing, patters, some, 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 <laughs> some stories yes. about it, uh, and, it's, and, it's, any it's, impressions. It's there are songs and there is patter. And I do take questions, but on cards, my last show at the Carlisle, there were cards distributed in advance because if you open it up to, people who've been drinking (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so we took the cards which was very funny and some of the questions were funny but it's a mostly it's you know I like to think of myself as this person who is a raconteur you know like a good talker and that's the way I sing I I tell stories when I sing which now I'm sounding like you know Elaine Stritch or something (laughs) could be worse to sound like you know to sound like someone else but but the point is that I love it. It's part of the, I, I can't conceptualize doing a show at the moment without music, you know, I can't. Um, I mean, I've, I've dreamed of it, but I just can't get it up to do that. I'm not a stand-up, but I'm pretty funny. If you come see me, I, I, I think I'm pretty funny. I mean, people laugh, so that's a good thing. You know? <laughs> I was so delighted to receive the, as a Bemelman's regular, I was so delighted to receive your announcement for Cafe Carlisle and your run there. Would you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with the Guggenheim? Oh, sure. Well, you know, I've been working for the Guggenheim for a very long time for works in process about, I'm not kidding you, something like maybe 15 years ago, this incredible producer called Charles Fabius called and said, would you narrate Peter and the Wolf? It's going to be the Juilliard band and it's going to be such and such an artist whose name I forgot. He's going to do an installation on stage in the beautiful little Guggenheim Theater downstairs, that incredible round theater that is just beyond. And um, and of course, I jumped at this, you know. And, and so for the first like five years, I did this kind of narration just in the corner with different artists doing installations on the stage. And some of them were animated and some of them moved a little bit or were lit a little bit, but they were basically static. And you had these young kids coming and looking, and then they were allowed on the stage to look closer and whatever. But then Year five, I approached them and said, you know what, I'm about to work with this choreographer called John Hegenbotham, who is an old friend of mine. He's a he's a Mark Morris acolyte, as I am. We're all Mark Morris acolytes. But anyway, we were about to do this production of The Magic Flute in St. Louis. I was about to direct this production of and design and conceive this production of Magic Flute, which was amazing, I'm telling you. But as a little precursor to that, I said, why don't we put this little production of Peter and the Wolf together, you know? And so we worked on it. I designed it. I designed the set. I directed it. I casted it with John and John did the choreography. And we we started doing that about 10 years ago. And then over and around the pandemic, by the way, the minute I started working that, I, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be hilarious if there was some kind of like a, a sequel to Peter and the Wolf? And then when John was contacted by works in process, something about, I think you could look it up, like it, they commissioned more work from any, f- from artists than any other sort of 
you know, kind of foundation over the course of those weeks, you know, those years, the two years of COVID, right? So anyway, they contacted John, they contacted me, is there anything you would like to make for the works and process? And so we together decided to make this, this, um, this sequel to Peter and the Wolf, or a really more like a, it's not really a sequel, it's more like a, like a mate, it's like a, it's like a mate, right? Companion and, story. Um, <laughs> And, and, and the thing is that um, that I never thought of it as this kind of lockdown show. I always thought of, that it would be much better performed in a theater as opposed to virtual. So we worked on it and worked on it. They And they sponsored like a million or three anyway, bubble residences for us, which were so incredible. Imagine the middle of COVID, like going to the Catskills and doing this bubble residence. It was absolutely divine, wow. you know? And there was wow. one in New York and there was another one in... I forgot there were, a, oh, there was one in the Hamptons. There was one at the church, you know, that incredible church in Sag Harbor. Right. And, you know, for a week. Anyway, so it was an incredibly enriching thing. Nico Muley, who's been a friend of mine. Likewise. Forever. I mean, he's, he's, I've known him since he's like nine years old or something like that. And I approached him to write the music. And within five minutes, I got an email back like, yes, you know. So he wrote the music. I wrote the book. And it's going to happen on, on, on June third, fourth, and fifth in New York City at that wonderful little theater, the Frank Lloyd Wright Theater. And if um, we're listening to this after that, it's good, are there plans for it to move on and be yes, performed oh, in yes. other places? Yes, it will also be, it, then the next time you'll see it is in December. So it'll be in June and then most probably in December of 2022, right? And so we'll probably do it in concert with Peter and the Wolf. So it's like Peter and the Wolf one weekend and then the next weekend, third bird. Third bird is Imagine, the name of unless it. it's a huge flop and everybody hates it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Never do it again. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about QVC because some people listening to this may only know you that way or may only have had access to you that way. Did you see the thing on Netflix about Halston and did you agree with the assessment that when he uh, started doing the Penny stuff that he sort of turned a corner that was undesirable because I think what you do on QVC gets your product to the masses in a fun, entertaining, uh, legitimate kind of a way. And yeah. I've seen you on that thing and you seem to be having a ball. So uh, are you, and is it like joy? The thing we, we, the, the movie that David O. Russell did, uh, it, it, um, you know, I have to say uh, it's a, uh, it's a controversial thing that I do, I guess. It's more controversial than I imagine. Um, and it's, a, it's about like a theory or even more like a philosophy that I have about things. You know, um, I have a different take on what is essential uh, about integrity, you know, what integrity means. I don't think because your clothes are expensive or they're only available in exclusive places. I don't, I don't know because you know what, at some point in 1998, exactly, which is when I closed my doors, you know, it was like, okay, got it. It's like a lot of trunk shows with rich women in these stores, <laughs> balancing meds and trying on clothes and drinking champagne. It was like, <laughs> I, enough. It, it was kind of sickening, you know, I'm sorry. Wow. I, I, it, was, it was sickening, that's it. That was, that was my true opinion. And I just wanted not to do that anymore because it was like, I was putting this gargantuan effort into it and it was reaching, I felt the wrong kind of end use. It was just the wrong end use for me. Plus, the other thing is like, 
you know, it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. And I was right about that, honey. Have you noticed what's happened to that business since 1998? Have you noticed that it has not be, it was not sustainable? Sorry, there aren't enough of those women at Bergdorf, Sinem and Marcus right. to, 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 to justify spending $3 trillion every season on a show. Unless you've got a million licenses and all you have is money and hooray for you. And then it's just art, you know, in which case it's a lot of fun, but I feel that art should have a different meaning than people walking down a runway in clothes because I don't know, it just doesn't, it, none of it makes a lot of sense to me. So I made this big decision that integrity was a, had a different meaning for me, you know? And so I decided to do this collection with Target. That was the first thing I did. If it's possible, you know, to make clothes, obviously not, you know, constructed gowns that would, you know, obviously not that, um, but just plain little things that are appreciated and really good colors and that might actually reach into these people people's lives and make them happier in some tiny way. And, you know, I know this sounds like, some Miss America pageant, but I do think <laughs> that if you surround yourself with like stuff that you really like, as opposed to stuff that you think like, you know, Tom Ford likes or your mother likes or something, <laughs> you are just going to be happier. I mean this, if you, if you have, if you live in a dark black box, paint it white or something, try that. If you're depressed, try painting it white, just try, you know, because that just the idea of being in a light box, maybe will bring some light into your soul, right? This could be right. And so that's what I, that's what I really think. I don't necessarily love this kind of designer uh, totalitarianism. I don't, you know, I just want to be another friend to a woman at this point, because it's mostly women's clothes I make. You know, and so on QVC, I have this hilarious opportunity to do stand up and sell, you know, thousands of wonderfully, <laughs> wonderfully cut and wonderfully fabricated T-shirts at, at the same time. Yeah, it, it all it reminds me of your choice to go to design school instead of acting school. It feels like an extremely practical choice that is also the unpopular choice. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. Um, uh, what, if Unpopular were, and practical, darling. Same law. <laughs> but somebody, somebody along the way tried to talk you out of it. Um, no, not really. You know, one of well, my, you said controversial. I just wondered if that was like somebody said. Well, wait, wait, no, no, no. You're, you're, you don't. You should no, be over but here, you know, like everyone there. says, oh God, Halston just lost it when he went to J.C. Penney. And in fact, when I went to Target, I recreated this whole thing called Mastige that everybody after me did, and nobody remembers that. Now it's like everybody does a collection. Now it's like you're nothing unless you make a collection for for Sears or something. You know. <laughs> So, yeah. What would you say to a young person starting out now who's super interested in design and fashion? Um, run. <laughs> <laughs> but if they have to, they, 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 they're like, I, well, that's the good thing. Me. If they have to, they won't listen to me. You know, I always tell them my biggest advice is just don't listen to advice. I mean, that advice is just a terrible thing. Hmm. People think they're helping you and they're really not helping you. And if you have a vision and you're going to do what you're going to do, then nothing will stop you and good, you know, and that's really a good thing. Even if it's fatal, even if you die trying, at least you'll be more engaged. You'll, you know, you're going to try and have a lot of fun or something. And I really believe that. I mean it. It's like, you know, 
I don't believe in, in, in living a life of, 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 of quiet desperation where you do something you don't want to do for a prolonged time. You know, I think you got to do stuff you just want to do. And, and, and so if you really want to do this, if you really want to do this, then for heaven's sake, do it, you know. And that's my advice. Don't do it for any other reason than really feeling it. But otherwise, run. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> run. the hills, darling. Run for the hills. Um, a lot of what we do is look back to understand where we're going forward, um, including the Accutron, the watch that we wear, um, launched in 1960. Can you talk a little bit about the 60s influence on your work? Well, um, I was born in 1961, and I grew up as an infant during the 60s. And, you know, um, I think it was the most influential thing to me. That was, growing up was the biggest influence, watching this design kind of ethos unfold, right? Among the products in my world, in, in, the, in the, the, pro, the products that were brought into the home, you know, um, the clothes my mother wore, the just the choice of, of of linens. I don't know every single thing. I think that was the biggest thing that affected me, and it and it also it it was the thing that I based everything in. You know, if you look at my clothes, they do have a kind of sixties. And you know, I'm doing this ballet, even ballets. I'm doing this ballet for Mark now, um, which is Burt Bacharach, the music of Burt Bacharach, as 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 seen by Ethan Iverson, who's a great great musician who Mark works with a lot of times and I'm doing the costumes and you can't help thinking. I mean, you know, the minute you hear the songs and the minute you get yeah. immersed into that music and it really is the biggest influence in my life. You know, that, that, that idea of, and, 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 and luckily Mark approached me to do the costumes because if he was doing the show about Burt Bacharach and didn't approach me, <laughs> I probably never would have spoken to him again. <laughs> but that's going to premiere in October in Los oh, Angeles. Cool. Oh, that's so great. That's so yeah, I love beautiful. that moment in uh, Austin Powers when he's talking and then just suddenly goes, ladies and gentlemen, the sound of Burt Bacharach and he's on the, he's on and that bus. Burt is on, Burt is on the, the double-decker bus. Yeah. Well, he was, he, when I was a kid, I loved Burt Bacharach music so much. I had all of the records, all of his records, all of Dionne Warwick's records, all of Dusty Springfield's records, all of every single one of those musicals he wrote, Promises, Promises, right. and Lost Horizon, and all of every single bit of it. And, um, and, 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 and I got to meet him and work with him for a second, and that was a thrill, you know? I mean... He, he's 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 an idol of mine and 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 back to the 60s you know it's like um i have to say when i emerged my clothes looked like a sort of homage to the 1960s they were very kind of mod you know and i take a lot of twists and turns but it always goes back to this kind of elemental thing where you kind of pare things down and you geometrize them or something that it's just better when it's like simpler and and my work is a lot about color it's very psychedelic really everything about my life and my work and here's a funny story you ready for this growing up we had this big living room that was carpeted in this beautiful kind of Spanish olive green woolen broadloom. It was just this woolen stuff and it was so soft and beautiful and it had a velvety, it was just divine. And I never forgot this. And when I, when, when I first did my apartment that I moved into about 30 years ago, which I'm still in, okay, um, 
I, I, I just, I, I picked a carpet in my bedroom. I put the carpet and I did the garment and my sister came over and she's like, Isaac, do you realize that this is exactly the same color as our living room? And it, it just, it was like this crazy, crazy thing. And then I changed the bedroom out to gray about, I don't know what, 15 years ago. And I hated it. And I lived with it for like five or six years. And finally, I just had to go back to that green. And luckily, I found the green. It's this crazy sort of like yellowy Spanish olive green. It's divine. You can go home again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in that respect, you can. Yes. But I love that idea that you know, we're, we all carry these influences uh, from our past and we pull them through into the new work we do that goes into the future. It feels like that's what Bert was doing. You know, he wasn't part of the the swing, the, the rock and roll 60s. He was pulling, you know, almost Tin Pan Alley through into the 60s um, in his in his complex songwriting and all that stuff. And then you kind of pulling him then up through well and also bert had a classical bent as well and he had this kind of classical music training i think one of his teachers was like mio or something or i forgot who it was he told me and it was like wow well that makes so much sense it was either ives or something one of his teachers was like one of those incredible minimalist pre-minimalist kind of yeah Isaac, you mentioned earlier about your parents being the reason that you moved out, got involved in design, and basically had to establish yourself. And I wonder uh, if part of that was it was difficult being gay and difficult coming out. Of course. Oh, my God. I think it's... I think it's, I think they're going to ask that question of heterosexuals in 20 years. From now. I hope so. <laughs> is it easier to be a heterosexual now than it was 20 years ago, which is today, right? I, I feel like it's easier to be gay today than it is to be straight. I swear to God. Especially I in actually New York. Pity, I pity the gentlemen, either of the gentlemen who are, are sitting with you that aren't gay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I kind of been bringing it back around to your parents who you said you were forced to kind of move out from, but they, he, yeah. your father was in the business, uh, in the clothing <laughs> business and got you a, a sewing machine when you were yeah. like 15. Yeah. Right. So are they, did they become proud and are they, uh, were they happy with what you decided to do with your life? Well, you know, my dad passed away when I was 20. 21, oh. 20 or 21. And, um, and, 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 and as sad as it was, as, as, as miserable as I was for days and days mm. and weeks and weeks and years or whatever it took me to get over, I also felt a great sense of relief that I would never have to, you know, sort of make him kind of uh, face the fact that I was gay. And, you know, I was, I've seen a shrink since I'm in first grade. So since I'm eight years old, I've been in therapy and, and I actually was in therapy in high school and in college and the, and paying for it myself. I was selling sketches and, and paying for therapy. How about that? In college. How about that? All right. And, um, and, and, and the shrink told me, you know, don't tell your father. The stories don't sound promising. I just would maybe don't tell him, you know. And then my mother told me, do not tell your father that you're gay. Right. And I think if I had made him confront it, it just wouldn't have been a pretty thing. And and because I'm from New York, because my relatives all live in New York, it was never that easy while he was alive to navigate the waters of being a homosexual. And when he died, I was I was definitely out before I came out at about 18, right? Um and, and but the minute he died, it was just much easier for me to inhabit 
this identity, which is the identity that is who, you know, this is who I am. And I don't mean for that to sound horrible, but I often think of it as a very lucky thing. You know, I, I, I do. I don't want that to sound awful, but. No, it's understandable. And your, but, and your mother uh, did see your success, I assume. Yes, she, she did. And she's still with us. And she, she, you know, the thing about my mom is, I, I, and this, I think, is a whole other discussion, maybe for another Accutron moment <laughs> podcast. But, I, you know, like, I think she, she was like, only wanted me. She didn't want me to be in show business. You know, she just didn't. And that was why <laughs> that I was didn't, you know, it's like, in some way, I feel like I did the design thing you know, to make her happy. And it makes her so happy. Like, and she just loves every single aspect of the fact that her son is a designer, you know? Whereas like, she doesn't exactly understand what I do as a performer. She's like, what do you do in a hotel? Where is this hotel? It's like, darling, it's called the Carlisle Hotel, okay? And also I do theaters, I work in theaters. You know, she just won't accept it. It's like a funny, funny, funny thing. But I said, what, what are your hopes? for the future of design as a category ac across media? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know what my hopes for design are. I hope, I hope that design makes progress. I hope that quality makes progress. You know, right now, quality does not seem to be an issue in design the way it used to be. You know, you can design something and you just put it out there and everybody likes it or doesn't like it, but it breaks and it doesn't function properly and it's not okay. And it feels really frustrating. And there are very few products. And you know what? Can I tell you one product yeah. that really works? The eye products, the iPhone, the i I mean, this little phone, first of all, the design of this thing is so divine, right? Like, is there anything more beautiful? Except for a beautiful laptop, like an Apple. I mean, the Apple products, they work. I don't know where they make them. I don't know what statute of limitation. I don't know what it is, but it, it's We don't beautiful. ask questions. <laughs> we just like- And them. you know, occasionally something will crash or something will go down, but for the most part, and especially when Mercury is retrograde, like today, by the way, it just went retrograde today, things will crash and things will burn. But you know what? I think that that is a really good example of design that keeps moving forward. You know, I really mean it. And I hate them when they change the earphones and I hate them when they change- <laughs> And I hate them when they do that. But really in the end, it's a very, very good- design company, you know, I mean that. That's a crazy thing. Like I used to think, you know, one of my best friends was Tibor Kalman. I don't know if anybody knows who Tibor was. Tibor was a really good designer, one of the best designers. He's legend. You should look Google him if you don't know who he is. Um, and he and I used to talk about like quality as it's integrated into design. There is no functional, there is no design without some kind of quality. And, you know, it's like, I get something and it breaks like a car. I just got this car and it's like the craziest thing. It just keeps breaking, you know, and it's insanely beautiful. It's the most beautiful car I've ever sat in in the world. But so far it's been in the shop for more time than I've had it. Okay. How about that? Want to give um, that brand a shout out? <laughs> uh, no, I don't actually. They know I'm furious. They know I'm furious. But, 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 you know, so it's like, I, I just don't understand that to me. It's like, it can't, if it, if it looks good and it doesn't work, well, what good is it? You know, what good is it? Well, that's why so I love, how does that I, love watches I want for design that to work. Right. That's my hope for design that it starts to work more.
<laughs> Listen, uh, this is, we could talk to you forever about design, and we were very privileged to have you here today. We really appreciate it, and uh, we will continue the conversation. Isaac Mizrahi, thank you for joining us on the Accutron Show, and we will look for you at the Guggenheim, uh, theaters <laughs> across the country, and hopefully mom is in the front row. Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To listen to all of our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. To learn more about the world of Accutron, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch and subscribe to our podcast. From New York City, until next time, Accutron Time.